0: What I want to do is point you right away to a verse in the New Testament in 1 John. 1 John 4.10. And in this verse, it's a short little verse, but we get these five amazing little statements about God's love for us in the cross and about what's happening at the cross and what's actually accomplished for us at the cross. So I want to look at that verse together and unpack that with you. So 1 John 4.10, and I'll read it right now for you. 1 John 4.10 says... In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's an amazing little verse, and I just want to go bit by bit. Right off the beginning, John says, this is love. Now, we have to stop right away at love. Why? Because we have messed love up. But We as human beings have messed up what it means to love. It's easy for us to get a picture of what God means by love if we just look at say the Old Testament story where God's dealing with his people Israel. He tells them there's one thing above all things that I really want you to do. And that one thing is this, I want you to love me. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Love me with everything you are. That's his expectation. To love, to love him. His idea of love is not some half-hearted love. Some, I love it sometimes, but, but sometimes I don't. Uh, my actions maybe don't show it, but I'm just saying it kind of love. God is asking for a whole, complete love. That's how God loves, and that's how God asks us to love him. In Israel's story, they actually tell him they love him all the time, and he, he gets frustrated with them they sing songs to him. We have an entire book of the Bible that are songs written to God. And they sing these songs to him, and and he says, stop singing. Stop singing these songs, because I know your heart isn't in it. I'm not seeing it with your life. You're just saying all these empty words to me. Before I uh, I was a pastor here, I was actually a worship pastor, uh, another church, and I did worship uh, leading for, for a long time. And I would see all the time guys in the band, bands I used to work with, where we would come on Sundays and we'd sing these songs. We're singing words, you know? Like, like God, we love you so much. Take all of our life. Everything I have is yours. And then I would watch these, some of these guys during the week and go, these guys are messed up. Like, how are they singing this stuff when their life doesn't reflect this at all? That's not what God wants. That's not God's kind of love. The Israelites even made sacrifices where they would burn animals and sacrifice to God to say, God, we love you so much. But eventually he says, stop making these sacrifices because the smell of the smoke coming up to me just irritates me. I, I can't stand the smell of it because I know your heart isn't in it. So when we look at love and we look at God's love, the love we see at the cross, we're seeing a love that is full, that is complete not some compartmentalized little love like maybe we understand it today. A love that costs him everything that's real, that's physical, that's painful. So this is love. John continues, and he says, this is love, not that we have loved God. Now, what's so, what's so hard about that? Well, we like to think that all of this stuff is about us. Right? That's what we do. We tend to think all of this stuff, everything we read in the Bible, all of the story of human history, you know, we think it's about us. It's all pointed at me. That's not reality. That's not reality at all. Let me give you a picture of this. When I was young, when I was maybe seven years old, our family went to Disney World in Florida. So we went down to Disney World, uh, which is the good and big Disney theme park. Um, because we lived in Ontario, and so you go, you go to Florida, not, not to LA. And one of the rides there was this ride where you get on cars, you know, you're a little kid, and you get, they strap you into a race car, and then you race around the track. And so I did this, so they, they strapped me in, and little seven-year-old Jeremy's strapped into the car, and I'm driving my little brains out. I'm, I'm hitting the gas, I'm hitting the brake, I'm all excited. Come around the end, they're waving a checkered flag, and I win the race, because everyone wins the race. Um, it's a ride, but I don't know that. So seven-year-old little me is you know, getting out of the car. I'm looking around, and I'm pretty pumped. Like, I'm proud of myself, because I just won a race car race. And so I'm walking up to my dad with my little seven-year-old you know, chest puffed out like this, and I'm thinking, throw me the keys, Dad. Like, I'm driving us home. I'm seven, I don't care. I just proved that I can drive cars. Now, he didn't let me, because I'm insane. My seven-year-old me is literally insane, because I can't drive a car at seven years old. I had the entire perspective of my own power and what was going on totally wrong. I thought I had a whole bunch of power and a whole bunch of influence and all this control that I didn't even have, right? This was a ride. I didn't have any power, but I thought I was accomplishing a lot, you know, I thought I was bigger than I really was. And we make that mistake all the time. It's actually a question of whether we view our existence in a sane way or not. If we think it's all about us, and we think that we are God, if we think we are the creator rather than the creation, then we're insane. We're actually not viewing our existence properly. We have to reorient ourselves to understand this stuff isn't about us. The Bible, this whole story, it's not about us. It's a story about God and what He's doing. And that He loves us for some bizarre and amazing reason. I challenge you to think about that. How do you actually view yourself? Do you view yourself as creation or creator? Ask yourself the question when you make decisions for God do you feel like you're doing God a big favor right so if you decide I'm gonna give a little extra money because it's Christmas or whatever it is you kind of feel like God is really really oh thanks you know thanks for doing that I really need that (laughs) right that's not what's that's not what's going on you know when you when you walk in On Sunday or today, do you walk into the room and think, yes, God is probably very honored by the fact that I have woken up, you know, some people, noon, to show up on Sunday and to sit here and sing songs to him. How honored he must be that my presence is here before him. You know, maybe we don't go that far, but we really do think that a lot. So John's telling us we have to get it right. You gotta get it right. This whole thing isn't about you, and it's not about me. It's about him. That's what he says next, that in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us. We don't think that it's actually a very big deal that God loves us, right? I don't think we do. I don't think we, day to day, fully appreciate how huge of a thing it is that the creator of the universe actually loves you. We don't because we are entitled. We're entitled. We think we deserve everything. We all actually probably in our hearts to some level feel like God should love us. He should give us Jesus. We deserve to be saved. That's not reality. I mean, lately I I find it interesting that everyone who lives in Vancouver, it seems right now, wants to complain about Vancouver, right? So everyone, constantly, it's all you see posted, it's all you see talked about, it's on the news. Man, Vancouver is the worst, you know? It's so expensive here. Like, oh, it's unbelievable. We We literally live in the worst city on Earth because it's so expensive, and I don't think my wife and I, and this is what I hear all the time, I don't think we're ever going to be able to buy our dream home in this city. It's just too expensive. I, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for us to ever own a dream home in Vancouver. It's probably just a dream. <laughs> Sorry, where was it that we read in the Bible here? Where was it that we read at some point that as human beings, or as Christians, we're entitled to any material thing whatsoever. It's it's not here. We aren't entitled to anything. We need to look at people like Job. Now, I just finished doing a study on the book of Job last month. And Job is a really interesting case. So Job is this character in the Old Testament who, he's a very devout follower of God. And so the question is is raised, well, Job has a very blessed life. He has a great family, he has wealth, he has homes, all this stuff. But what if he didn't have any of that stuff? Would Job still trust God? Would he still be a devout God follower? So in the story, that's what happens. So everything is taken away from Job. His family, his kids, his house, his wealth, even it goes so far as taking away Job's health. Job's wife comes to him, and Job's wife, being the good and caring wife that she is, says to Job, Job, come on, curse God, and let's be done with this. To which Job says, no, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. So blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is not an entitled human being. That is a person who understands their place. In this existence. And the fact that anything they have is simply a gift from God. So do we understand that today? Do you understand that today? That all the stuff you have and that I have, it's not yours. It's not mine. These are just gifts we're being lent by God for a period of time. He's saying, here, have this house. Sure. Let's see what you, what you do with it for me. Have these kids, let's see what you do with that to glorify me. Wealth, use it to glorify me. But at any point, you can take it. It's not ours. It's not ours. Makes me think of of a great movie. Uh, It's from the 90s, and I've recently learned that when I talk about the 90s, uh, my communications staff uh, tells me I'm really old because the 90s apparently were ages ago. Um, and it's not. It was like last week. 90s weren't that um, so they like to make fun of me about the 90s. Anyways, there's a movie in the 90s called Schindler's List, and you probably most of you have probably seen it. There's a scene at the end of this movie where Oscar Schindler has just saved thousand Jews from dying in Nazi death camps. But the war is gonna end and so he has to leave. He has to flee. So he's waiting to get into his car and the scene is unreal. It's these thousand people whose lives have literally been saved by this man, standing there in reverent awe, looking at this man in the face, in that moment, realizing the only thing that matters in their life is the fact that this man has saved them. It's like this weighty, heavy moment in the, at the end of the movie where where it's just awe and it's, it's quiet. People's eyes fixed on him because that's all that actually matters. So today when we come on Good Friday, in a similar way, we actually come and we sit here and we, we sing songs and we, and we listen and, and we stand and we'll take communion. And we're looking at the cross. We're looking at Jesus on the cross for us And we should be saying, that's all that matters. Nothing else. You know, my image, my job, my house, my family, none of it. None of it really in the grand scheme of things matters in the way that he does to me. What he's done is all I need. I mean, I... I pray all the time I can be a person who doesn't come before Jesus like that and not feel like it's not enough. Let's not be people who don't think that's enough for us because we don't deserve any of it. And I was reading some stories this week about Christian martyrs, people today that are actually dying because they're Christians being killed, persecuted. It's happening all around the world and you know what these people have straight? They have this straight. They understand that it's not all about them, that they aren't entitled to anything in this world and it's only by God's grace that they live and they breathe and the only thing that really matters to them is that they have him and so they're willing to let everything else go. So I challenge you with that today. Can you intentionally begin to move your heart so that you, you release and you let go of your grip on everything else in the world, while then securing it tighter and tighter on Christ, so that you and I can become people who can say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what comes or what goes in our life. So in this is love. Not that we love God, right, but that he amazingly loves us. And then we get God's love put into action, as John says, because he sent his son. God the Father sends his son. There are a few things that are really important to understand about this. One is, when Jesus comes... I think we get a a mixed up and kind of messed up view of what's actually happening. I I see this when I talk to Christian people all the time. They have this image in their mind that there's there's Jesus and he's this this, um, this weak and meek kind of figure who who is full of tears and anguish because he's sitting up there in heaven and he's looking down on all of us and he knows his angry and upset father is gonna judge everyone and he just can't take it. Like, he just can't live with it. And so he says, no, no, no. Father, don't judge them. Judge me instead. I'll take take it instead of them. And so he steps in. And the angry, kind of distant father says, fine, do whatever you want. And then judges Jesus instead. That's not how it works. All of this, all of this starts with the father. The whole thing starts with the father. It's the father who loves you and who loves me. It's the Father who, because he loves you and me so much, is willing to sacrifice his son for you and for me. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is asked, Would you be willing to even sacrifice your own son for me? How how committed are you to me? You can only imagine the anguish and the pain and the pressure Abraham would feel. And am I really going to? give up my own child for God? That's what the Father does for you and for me. It's real, real love, Him giving up His own Son for you. It's really important because it helps us understand that God the Father is all about love. He's not a distant, judgy God who just hates everyone. He's love. Yeah, he's justice, and we need that. We need a God that's going to judge well, but he's also love. And it helps us understand who Jesus is. The marking characteristic of Jesus' life is obedience. And so when you and I are asked to be like Jesus in our life, we're asked to obey. That's the call for you and me. The call in our life is to obey and live under The authority and will of God in our life, not ourselves, not anything else, but to submit ourselves and to trust God's wisdom and authority to be the ruling factor in our life. That's what we're called to. We see it in Jesus. And we have to understand it's gonna cost us something. Right? It's gonna cost us. It's gonna be painful. I was able to share this week um, at a, a Korean youth conference. Um, for a Korean uh, Christian kids in high school, and that was one of the things we talked about a lot. Was guys, when you're making this decision to follow God, this is gonna cost you. It's gonna hurt when people, you know, make fun of you, or when people, you know, say things about you, or you have to break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend over this. It's gonna hurt. You're gonna feel it. But look at Christ. Really hurt him. That's what we're celebrating. And we shouldn't expect anything different from our life. He sent his son to die for us. It's God's love and it's Jesus' obedience. That's what we're called to. But we also understand what Jesus' whole mission was, right, when we understand that God has sent him. He sent him not to be a teacher, He didn't send Jesus to be a healer. He sent Jesus to die. His mission was to save, not to teach and to heal. His mission was to save. And we make a mistake all the time where we look at Jesus and we say, I like Jesus, Jesus is great. He's a good teacher in my life. The problem is then what we do is we selectively bring Jesus in and out of our life when we feel like we need inspiration or we need to learn something. Or we look at him and we say, yeah, he was a healer. He came and he healed. And then we just bring him in and out of our life when we need healing, when we need him to help us or fix something. It's only when we understand that Jesus is our Savior, that was his mission, that's what was happening when he came, that we then can release everything. We can release it all. And we can say, that's all that matters. None of this other stuff just that Jesus has done this for me. That becomes everything, everything to us. Let me give you a little story about how this has played out in my life. Uh, I shared last year, actually a good Friday, I shared last year about my wife and about how she is suffering with health problems because uh, she was in a car accident a little more than four years ago and uh, she was rear-ended and ever since she has headaches. This has been four-plus years now of trying every possible treatment and therapy and everything that's under the sun uh, with basically nothing. And recently we were talking about how um, we believe God can heal. And um, and so we were talking about that. And she says this thing to me, which, which just stunned me. She says to me, you know, I fully believe God can heal. Fully believe it. I just am wondering, and I think I'm coming to a place where I don't think he wants to heal me right now. And so the question I'm asking God now is, okay, God, what is it you want to teach me while I'm suffering through this? How do we become people where we can look at Jesus on the cross and say, that's enough. That's enough for us. It doesn't matter what else is taken away from me. If it's my job or my health or everything I was dreaming of. Jesus and what you did on the cross is enough. It's all I really need. John finishes up. He says, um, this is love. Not that we've loved God, that God's loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. This is really important. This word propitiation, you know, to us, it's just a big kind of theological word, but here's what it means. It means that someone had to take The wrath of God's judgment for the sin and the evil that was in all of our lives. God had to judge it. He had to pour out his wrath on everything that was wrong and evil and sinful in humanity. And it was Jesus that took it. See, this wasn't an act where Jesus went to the cross and died some symbolic death where Jesus says, wow, Or God says, wow, Jesus, what a beautiful gesture. What a gesture you've made for humanity. And now I will forget all of the sins of these people, and they'll be saved. That's that's not what's happening. See, for God to be a good judge, he actually needs to pour out his judgment and wrath on everything that isn't good. That's what Jesus takes when he goes to the cross for you. When he goes to the cross for me. He's taking the physical wrath of God being poured out onto him. He suffers through that. This isn't some symbolic act. It's real and it's painful. And it actually achieved something. When we went to the cross, it achieved something. It was payment for every sin you and I will ever make, past, present, and future, and it covers it. There's nothing left. You're not going to sin sometime in the future. You're not going to turn on God sometime in the future and go, well, his wrath didn't cover that, so now you better be worried. You can have full assurance that when Jesus died and took the punishment for you, it was good enough, and it was done, and now you can live in freedom with that. The cross should compel us to loosen our grip on everything, tighten it on him, tighten it on Christ, because while you and I hold tightly to our money. Jesus became poor. He went to the cross just like a despised criminal, naked with absolutely nothing. And while you and I hold tightly to our egos, Jesus, he humbled himself. He was God and he became this tortured man on a cross. While you and I, we hold tightly to our houses, Jesus gave up his throne in heaven so that he could come and die and we'd end up putting him in a tomb. While you and I, we hold tightly to our families, maybe two kids. The father gave up his only son so that he could be sacrificed and take the wrath of everything you and I deserve, all of that punishment. And while you and I, we hold on to our health and our life, Jesus, he gave it up. He gave up his life and died for you and for me on the cross. We're going to take communion. And this is what we are remembering when we take communion. Remembering what it is he's done for us. We need to come to communion and look at Jesus on the cross and say to ourselves, that's it, that's enough. That's enough for me. Let's not make communion something that's empty and act like one of those songs or or sacrifices where God says, I see you're doing it, but you don't really mean it. Make it real right now as we pass the, the bread and the juice. Dip it, take it, and really say, really say to Christ, you are enough for me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what you've done, for your sacrifice. We deserve none of it. We deserve none of it, but you've given it to us. You, Jesus, are everything, and you're all we need. We let go of our grip on everything else, and we hold tight to you. God, thank you for that gift. Thank you for life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.